Welcome, and thank you for viewing our weekly sermon. I'm Pastor Malone, and I pray this message be a blessing to you and help you grow closer to Jesus. If you'd like to know more about having a personal relationship with Jesus or to connect with us as a church, please visit westacres.org. Thanks again, and God bless. Well, amen. Thank you, choir and praise team for, I'm just going to say it, getting us pumped, okay? I don't know about you, but it's been a wonderful time of worship so far. And we're going to continue worshiping the Lord by coming to His Word. And uh, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn in the book of Acts, New Testament, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, and we're starting a new chapter today. And Lord willing, um, we're going to make it through an entire chapter of Scripture. Again, Lord willing. But uh, right now, uh, we are about to come to a new section uh, starting next week uh, of the book of Acts. Chapter 13 is a, is, a, is a new section that's starting, so we're completing a section right now um, in Acts chapter 12. And this is going to be one of the last stories of this guy that I love, that I can't wait to meet in heaven. Uh, Jesus, yes, is the guy I want to meet the most, uh, but I'm looking forward to meeting Peter. He is one of my favorite, favorite men in Scripture. Miss Jan Deasa, so good to see you this morning. So good to see you. I just had to make note of that. God bless you. But Acts chapter 12, uh, once you found your place, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate, leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them to, to his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said to them, tell these things to James and two of the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that being his right-hand man, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. You may be seated. When we read and study the news, it feels like each and every day evil is winning in this world. Evil definitely has a presence, and it opposes us. It opposes Christ, His church. But dear friends, we must remember that evil will not prevail. Evil has its day. It has its day today, but it's going to have its day coming. Evil has its purposes. But it will not have the final victory. I like the words that Jesus said to Peter, the main character of our passage today. He said this, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we go through Acts 12 together today, I want to share the main idea with you. The main, main idea of chapter 12 is this, God's people will experience attack and suffering in this world. But we must remember that our God wins. That's the title of the message today. God wins. But I'll, I could just say that in past tense. Our God has won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've divided this lengthy passage today into three sections to keep us on track. Uh, but number one, the attack. Number two, the rescue. And we're going to finish out with number three, the victory. Let's begin with our first point today, the attack. That covers verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands 
on some who belong to the church. Now this Herod, we, there's a lot of Herods in Scripture, amen? Uh, and just so you're not confused, I want to just give you a little history lesson on who this Herod is. This is Herod Agrippa the first, And you've already read already, he's not going to make it past chapter 12. There's going to be another Agrippa later on that Paul gets to witness to. But we've seen some of Herod's family in Scripture already. And this family has a family tradition of being on the wrong side of things. They have a family tradition of opposing God. The book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, we read about Herod the Great. He was the one when he heard about the wise men coming because of the star. And he found out about the king of Israel being born. He ordered that all the baby boys in Israel, two years and under, be murdered. Be killed. What was his end game there? He was trying to kill Jesus. He didn't win there. We also see that Herod Agrippa's relative, his uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. So as we see, this family has a tradition of opposing God. Herod Agrippa keeps the family tradition going by being violent to the church. This violence was aimed primarily to the leaders of the church. This violence was going to the church, but we see two individuals in particular being the recipients of that violence. James and Peter. That's such an important lesson for us to know. Anytime you want to affect an organization, who do you go after? You go after the leaders. That is the devil's, one of his greatest strategies in trying to hurt the church is going after the leaders, going after the elders, going after the pastors. That's, that's such a reminder, church, for you to pray for your pastors and to pray for your leaders. I, I say this, I hope there never comes a time where my name is, is shared in negative light. I hope there never comes a time where they're like, oh man, yeah, that was dirty, that was nasty. Uh, pray for me, okay? Pray for the pastors of your church because all of them, everywhere, every church, there's a target on their back coming from the evil one. And we see this taking place in the New Testament with, with Herod. In verse 2, it said that he killed uh, James with a sword. This most likely means that he cut his head off, that James was beheaded. Now, which James was this? This was James, the, the brother of John. These two guys were the sons of Zebedee. I like their nickname, Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. But James was one of the 12 apostles, but he was also in the inner circle of Jesus. He was, he was in that inner three with his brother John and Peter, which means that he had so much more relationship with Jesus than the others. He was able to witness and experience so many things that the other guys didn't get to see. So what does this mean? This means James, the Apostle James, was the first apostle martyred in the church. This also means he was the first one that got to be with his Lord and Savior because he was called first, okay? But we see that Herod not only killed James, but he was also going to kill Peter. Those were the intentions, but he couldn't do it right now because the Passover was coming. The, the days of unleavened bread, they couldn't have a trial and they couldn't have a capital punishment during this time. So what does he do? He, he, he wants to see what the crowd's going to do by arresting Peter because he wants to please these Jews that, that have animosity and hate toward this new group and this new movement of Christians. But he wants to kill the preacher. He wants to kill the mouthpiece of the church. 
but he has to wait. So he arrests Peter, puts him in prison. He's waiting for, for that time to come soon. He's going to make a spectacle of Peter, Peter's execution. But with James dead and Peter in prison, think about this church. Think of the church that was gathering during that time. These were gloomy days. Gloomy days. Two of the apostles who at this point, ten years after the day of Pentecost, haven't been touched. Yeah, they've been, they've been beaten. They've, they've been arrested. But they're still with us. This was a big deal for, for James to have been murdered and for Je Peter to have been arrested. But Jesus told his disciples, don't be surprised when this happens. And he told his disciples before he went to the cross, he says, you will have suffering in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He was speaking of it in past tense before he even went to the cross, before he even rose from the dead. He said, I have overcome. Think of this truth, and I've already shared this, when people often ponder, well, why James? Why James, Lord? Why couldn't it be one of these other guys? Why, why was James murdered and Peter just arrested? We have to leave that in God's hands. God's sovereignty, His perfect sovereignty, His perfect providence, His perfect plan. That is one of the mysteries. That's when we face certain things from time to time. We say, God, why me? Why is this person over here okay, but why me? That's when we have to trust in the goodness, in the faithfulness, in the, in the perfection of God. Yes, James' head was cut off. He was immediately in the presence of his Lord. And I heard one preacher saying it like this. Herod might have been able to cut his head off, but we have a God that can put your head back on. That's a good word. Verse 5 shows us what the church is doing in response to these dreadful events. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God to the church. The church prayed earnestly. The church prayed earnestly. That Greek word translated earnest, it's a medical term. It, it means to stretch. It means to, to strain. Uh, people parallel this type of prayer to the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were praying in agony over their brother Peter. I don't think we pray that way. We, we like to say we pray earnestly, but when we really know what earnest prayer is, we are falling short. But what does this mean the church is doing? How are they reacting to this violence of Herod? Do, do they form up a posse and, and go to Herod's house? Or do they act in violence? How do they go to battle against Agrippa? I'll tell you how they go to battle. They use God's battle plan. They go to battle through prayer. They go to battle through prayer. I love what John Piper has to say in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. The church was using their walkie-talkie. Uh, they were praying for their brother Peter. And we're going to see later that God answers their prayer. I want you to know this, church. God hears your prayers and God answers your prayers. 
When we go to prayer, we not only pray to the God of this universe, we not only pray to God Almighty who can do all things, but we get to pray to our God by saying this, our Father, our Father who is in heaven, and our Father who loves us, and our Father who provides for us, our Father who has the very best in store for us, our Father who gives us our every need. You like that word need? Not necessarily your wants. My kids want everything. I take them to Walmart. They want this. They want that. Can I tell you the truth? What happens to that stuff when I provide those wants? It's in the trash can like three weeks later because it's junk. It's junk. But our God might not give us everything we want, but dear church, he gives us everything we need in his His answers are the very, very best. I don't know what battles you've been fighting this week. But but if you're in this thing, if you're with Christ, you're in a battle with this world. You're in a battle with evil. You're in this battle called life. And I don't know what you've been fighting with this week. Maybe it's been temptation. Maybe for some of you it's been a battle against pornography. Maybe your battle has been a failing marriage. Maybe your battle has been a diagnosis. Maybe your battle has been depression. Maybe your battle has been financial ruin. Maybe your battle has been what we see here in the book of Acts. Persecution. I don't know what your battle is. But we learn something here in Scripture. We are to take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We got too many soldiers, folks, that ain't doing their job. Praying. Not only praying to the commander, but you're not not even reading his orders. Reading the Scriptures. But we are to take it to the Lord in prayer. In prayer, when I say take it to the Lord in prayer, pray earnestly, strain yourself in prayer, stretch yourself in prayer. I want you to think about that. When, when, when life is hurting, when you are in the midst of the battle, are you just praying and say, okay, Lord, I pray you be with this. Honey, what's for supper? No! You were to pray earnestly. I, th- there's just something. I, I'm not saying this to, th- to manipulate you, but there's just something about being in the posture of prayer, being face down on the ground and saying, God Almighty, I need your help. Help me, Lord. For thou, O Lord. As we sang earlier, praying earnestly. When it comes to your prayer life, I want you to get a visual of that wartime walkie-talkie. I want you to picture your prayer life being a walkie-talkie. I I just think of all the movies I've seen, like Forrest Gump. You know, they're on this big old walkie-talkie talking, uh, trying to get instructions from their commanding officer. I want you to picture your your prayer life as a walkie-talkie. And I want you to answer this question to yourself. What does your walkie-talkie look like? Is it wore out? Is it scuffed up? Does it got scars, dirt, and mud all over it? If so, that's a good thing. Is it, is it showing signs of where your hands have been? Because you have it in your hand all day. Does it show your cheek mark? Because you've had it up to your face talking to your commander. 
If so, that's a good thing, because that means you've been, taking, you've been talking to the Lord in your battles. But if you answer the question this way, man, Pastor, mine's still got the plastic on it. Mine is shiny. Mine is spotless. I have put it away. If that's the case, that means you're not crying out to God. You're going to battle without your power. Uh, Billy Graham said this, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. If you want power in this battle, you have to be in prayer. Picking up that walkie-talkie and asking your commander to help you and to empower you in your daily battles. As the church was praying earnestly, we see that God was doing something in the midst. God was working miraculously. That leads us to the second portion of our passage today. The rescue, or what I like to call the great escape. The great escape. But let's look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries, that being guards, before the door were guarding the prison. Uh, the first thing we learn in verse 6 is this. This is the night before Peter's scheduled execution. Y'all read the story, right? He doesn't get executed in this passage. This is the night before his scheduled uh, execution. A second thing we learn from this passage, and going back to verse 4, Peter is in a maximum security prison. I don't know about you, but I love a good prison break story. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, prison break. I mean, I'm just the uh, escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood. I mean, you, that's on TV. I'm glued in. But then it dawned on me this week. One of my favorite people in the Bible, they got the best prison break stories of all. And they're true. They're true. But Peter is in a maximum security prison. He has four squads of soldiers guarding him. He is chained to two different soldiers. I picture Peter being like that classic briefcase with the handcuff on it. This guy's not getting anywhere. But it's not just one handcuff. He is, he is chained to two different guards. Folks, why all this security? Why all the security over this, this man of peace? This man of love? This man who was like Christ? Well, if you've been in our study so far in the book of Acts, this isn't the first time an angel has broke Peter out of jail. Peter has a history of getting out of prison. He has a history of breaking out of jail. And it's not of his own doing, but it is God's doing. In Acts 5, an angel of the Lord not only delivered Peter, but delivered his apostles out of prison. And with that said, they want to make sure this guy's not going to get anywhere. They're saying, we're not going to have that happen under my watch. Put two chains on him. Give me four squads of soldiers. I want a guard here, a guard here. We've got the iron gate here. But, but folks, think of this. Two chains. Soldier here. Soldier there. I mean, they think they've got this solved. They think they have up the ante on security. But their security measures are nothing against our God. It's amazing. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the sail. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Notice that the angel has to wake Peter up. Notice that an angel has to wake Peter up. Think about this for a moment. 
Think about this for a moment. Some of y'all are like, I can't even sleep in a hotel, Pastor, if I'm not in my regular place. Peter is in a prison cell, which has to be uncomfortable. He has two chains attached to him. That has to be uncomfortable. To, to sleep with, with some kind of something on you where you can't move freely. I had to do a sleep test recently with my dentist. Wanting to know if I had sleep apnea. And I had to wear this whole thing on me. I couldn't sleep. They were measuring my breathing, all this, this, or that. And I failed the test the first night because I couldn't sleep. Then I finally slept the next night. I still couldn't sleep because I had all this stuff on me. And I went back to the dentist. You know what they said? You snore. And I said, Dr. Davis, this is Dr. Ferguson, his associate. I said, well, you didn't have to tell me that. My wife could tell you that. But Peter is in this prison cell. He's got these chains attached to him. What's about to happen the next day? He's about to face execution. He is, he is about to be, his best friend James has just been murdered. He's just had his, his head cut off. But this is what is on Peter's mind. I mean, we think about that, folks that are uh, on death row. Uh, they are just pacing back and forth. They're, they're thinking about that last meal. What am I going to do? I mean, thinking of all these things. But here we have Peter sleeping. The great escape is an amazing, that, that's the amazing story. That is the miracle. But can I tell you what's even more amazing? Peter sleeping. Let me explain. How could a man sleep during a time like this? How could Peter sleep with this much pressure, with this much stress, with danger, just moments away, death at his door? How could Peter sleep so peacefully during a time like this? I want to tell you how Peter could sleep during a time like this. Because Peter had a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peter's Lord and Savior was the Prince of Peace. So Peter had peace. Peter not only had Jesus, the Prince of Peace, but Peter had the Spirit of Peace. He had the Holy Spirit living within him. And what do we know when you have the Holy Spirit living within you? That, which is for every believer, by the way. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit. One of the flavors of that fruit is Peace. Peace. The amazing thing of this story is that Peter has astounding peace in these moments. And that should be the same for every Christian. That should be the same through, through every storm. We should be just like Jesus sleeping in the storm because we have his peace. Another reason Peter is sleeping so good is he believes in the word of God. He believes in the Word of God. Also, Peter has experience in this prison thing. This isn't his first rodeo. He's probably like, I'm good. If God wants me out of here, I'm going to get out of here. I'm good. But going back to John chapter 21, if you know that story, the resurrected Christ visits Peter on the beach. You know, they have that whole exchange where Jesus is restoring Peter. But then Jesus tells Peter this, Peter, when you're a young man... You're able to do this, this, and that. But when you're an old man, you're going to be taken somewhere you don't want to go. Which there's a parenthesis by that verse that says this was speaking of his death. So what am I saying here? What is Jesus saying here? Peter's not going to die till he's an old man. Peter's not an old man yet. 
So Peter is trusting in the word of God. He's not scared of death. He's not scared of Herod. He trusts wholeheartedly in the will of God. In these next few verses, we see that Peter was half asleep. I mean, this, he's not just sleeping, y'all. Hey, he's not just sleeping like, like hospital sleep. You don't really sleep in a hospital, right? Uh, the nurse comes in, flips the switch every two seconds. I mean, then you're just up. No, no. he is sleeping good. He is sleeping good. So when the, the angel has to punch him, has to strike him to wake him up, and he's half asleep during all this. And it, it just makes me think of when I have to go wake my kids up in the morning to get them ready for school or, or trying to get them ready uh, for church. My wife could probably testify on days like today. Um, but I, I picture Peter just having his hair all up in a mess. I picture him having sleep in his eyes, a.k.a. eye boogers. Uh, he is sleeping good. And this angel has to coach him through this, just like a parent. Get your clothes on. Come on, follow me quickly. But look at verse 8. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Peter was sleeping so good he thought he was dreaming. He thought he was seeing a vision. Then in verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Newsflash, this story took place 2,000 years ago. I'm a millennial. I've, I've been alive ever since automatic doors have been in existence. But there, I know some of you probably remember the first time you walked through an automatic door. I heard Adrian Rogers speaking on this fact. He said he was amazed the first time he went to a store with automatic doors. Folks, an iron gate opens on its own. That is amazing. Let's backtrack a little bit. Chains fall. They get through these guards undetected. I don't know if these guys are asleep or if through God's supernatural ability, they just are able to get through this room. Just like Jesus made it through uh, his captors from time to time. He went through their midst. I don't know the specifics. All I know is they got out of Dodge. But then it says the iron gate opens like a, an automatic door in modern times. This was a great escape. But it was not done by the wit of men. This is a great escape, but it wasn't an inside job. That's what some people pass this story off and say, no, they had to have somebody on the inside helping. No, this great escape, great escape was done by the hand of God. And after Peter realizes he's alone, this, this angel's job is done. He gets Peter out of prison, mission accomplished. But then Peter is in the streets. He is a wanted man who's about to face execution. What does Peter do? Does he go back to the jail saying, I didn't mean to get out. Uh, does he go back? Does, does he pray? Lord, what do you want me to do? No, Peter has common sense. Peter has common sense saying, apparently God doesn't want me to die right now. Apparently God doesn't want me in prison. So he uses his common sense to find a nearby place, a familiar place, a safe place. And where does he go? He goes to the house of Mary. The house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Some people believe this might have been the upper room where the day of Pentecost took place. This might have been the upper room where the church had been gathering throughout this period of time. Uh, so, but John Mark, just to spend some time on him, he's the cousin of Barnabas. 
He's the cousin of Barnabas. That's going to be key later when, when Paul and Barnabas, they're going to have an argument over John Mark. Who do you think Barnabas is going to be in favor with? His cousin. His cousin. I think of Mike Kale. He's always saying, what's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? But Barnabas is going to be in favor with John Mark. Mark is also going to go on to write the Gospel of Mark. And what do we know from the Gospel of Mark? Many people believe that that full-fledged testimony came from Peter. So interesting how we have that name introduced here. And we'll see him later in this passage. Uh, but the next scene is humorous. This is where the Holy Spirit gets funny. This is where Luke, as a writer, gets funny. We have the church. I don't know what time of night it is, but it's nighttime. It's dark. They are gathered together praying earnestly. Then the answer to their prayers shows up to their door. We see this. Peter shows up to the door, and it says, When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She is so excited, and she is so happy, and she is, I'll just use this word, so ditzy, that she forgets to open the door to let him in. She is so excited. She says, oh, goodness, yeah, he's here. And she goes back in. But this is what the church says. They said to her, you're out of your mind. We're having a prayer meeting here. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it is his angel. The girl was so excited she forgot to open the door. But here we have the church earnestly praying. And then we have the answer to their prayers at the door. But they're so busy praying, they can't fathom that God would answer their prayer that quickly. And I've heard sermons, and I know there's plenty of room in this. This should be a sermon on expectant prayer. Yes, we need to have expectant prayer. But you, you know what this passage shows? It shows us. We are just like these people. Uh, we want to pray, 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 pray. But sometimes we stand amazed when God answers our prayers. Because we are just not expecting it to happen. But we should have those expectant prayers. But we see here, I like what Tony Marita says. God's grace here was so astonishing that even a praying church had a difficult time believing it. It's okay to be amazed by God. It's okay to be astonished because that's just the business he's in. He's an amazing God. They think Rhoda is crazy, and they insist that it's Peter's angel. Now, what does that mean? There's some different views on that. Uh, but in Jewish culture, that they, they had a misunderstanding. They, I believe in angels, okay? We believe in angels. I believe angels are there to minister to us. Hello, have you read the story? You've been following along? A min, uh, an angel helps Peter break out of jail. But they believe that each person had an angel that could take on their likeness, that, that actually looked like them. So your assigned angel looked like you. Y'all are probably saying, that poor angel. <laughs> Another interpretation, and this is one that I've never heard before, but it's, it's very plausible that, you know, the word angel doesn't necessarily mean supernatural creature from heaven, but the word angel means messenger. It's one of the primary jobs of an angel. But some believe that this could have just been a messenger, a courier of Peter to bring the church a message. They're saying it's not Peter, it's just his, his messenger, his angel. So they leave Peter standing outside the door with all these 
conclusions when they're totally wrong. Peter continues knocking, verse 16. When they opened, they saw, saw him and were amazed, but motioning them with his hand to be silent. This is a man that just broke out of jail. He's just like, y'all be quiet, keep it down. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. This wasn't uh, on the hand of the guards. This, nobody helped him break out. Nobody, uh, there wasn't this great escape plan by the hands of men. This was done by the Lord. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. What does Peter do in this story? The first thing he does is this. He gives all the credit, the praise, and the glory to God. But then he instructs the church, I need you to tell Peter and the brothers all about these things. I need you to tell James and the brothers about all these things. And some of y'all are like, wait a second, I thought James was dead. I thought he just got his head cut off. Where, where are you going with this? This is another James. This is another James. And who is this James that Peter's talking about? This is James, the brother of Jesus. Which, uh, uh, this is amazing. This is amazing. When Jesus was on this earth... When Jesus had this awesome and powerful ministry, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God incarnate, he had brothers and sisters. His own brother didn't believe in him. Can that give you some encouragement if you got family that don't believe in Christ? That Christ's own family didn't believe in him. But thanks be to God, after that resurrection, James came to know that his brother wasn't just his brother, but his brother was his Lord, and his brother was his Savior. And what I love is the testimony about James. He was known, just going back to the subject of prayer, you know what his nickname was? Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Spent so much time in prayer, praying to his Lord, to his Savior, and to his brother. They got the nickname of Camel Knees because he spent so much time in communion with his bro, his big bro. Because Jesus was born first, right? Okay, I'm glad y'all know that. Um, virgin birth. Um, okay, where am I? Our next verse proves once more the story wasn't a fabrication. It also proves this wasn't done by an inside job. It wasn't done by the hands of the guards. Look at verse 18. The next day, I mean, the cell is lit up now. Everybody realizes these chains haven't moved tonight. I haven't heard any rattling. I'm not hearing this guy snoring anymore. He's not here. It says, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And Herod searched for him and did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Peter's rescue was not done by the hands of men. It was not done by the hands of guards. Any guard during this time would have rather killed a prisoner than to let him go. Because they knew that if you release a prisoner, you're going to receive the same sentence they had coming. And that's how we know that Peter's sentence was going to be the death penalty because Herod put these guys to death. This was no fabrication. This was the hand of God. So Peter's, Peter's rescue was Herod's defeat. But our final verse gives us some details on God's victory. That's where we, uh, number three, the victory. 
Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Interestingly, Josephus gives us the history of this account too, a man's history. And when it's talked about his royal robes, that he wore a robe that had silver in it. So it was just glittering and, and shining with the sun. I mean, he looked godlike during this time. But it says he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them, delivered this, this great speech. And what do the people do? I, I don't, I'm not sure if they really believed this. I think they were just flattering the guy because they were hungry. They wanted food. They said this, the voice of a god, not a man. But Herod is not like Peter. Herod is not the kind of guy that says, sit down, I'm just a man. Hey, he's not like a Paul that says, don't worship me. Herod was a glory stiller. Herod wanted to hear those words. He wanted to be like God. So God struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Earlier in the story, we saw that Peter was struck by an angel to wake up. Here, in the final portion, we see Herod struck by an angel. Not to wake him up, but to put him to sleep. To put him to death. And when it says he, he was killed by worms, interestingly, most people in the scientific community believe this was tapeworms. And the way tapeworms happen, I mean, it can happen quickly, but many believe that these worms were already in his system when he was violently killing James and, and, and imprisoning Peter. But when it came to this day, on this appointed day, God said, I'm going to let those worms do whatever they want to do. I'm going to make those worms kill you because you're a glory hog. You're a glory stealer. My glory will not be shared with another. Thus says the Lord. So why did Herod die? Because he was a glory stealer. He killed James. He arrested Peter. He was violent against the church. But dear friends, I want, don't miss this. Don't miss this. In this world that we're living in, all the headlines that you read about day to day, that you're just like, I'm just fed up, Lord. All the opposition that comes to the church, all the opposition that comes to God's word, all the opposition that comes to the name of Jesus, I want you to remember this. When somebody fights against God, God fights back. He might not settle accounts quickly, but he will settle all accounts. Our God wins. Our God has won. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of redemption. All throughout the pages of Scripture, we have a God that wins. That brings me to our final two verses. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This story began with evil giving the church a painful setback, but it ends with glorious expansion. This story began with uh, God's servants being killed and imprisoned, but it ends with God's word going further and further. And I love if you're thinking, wow, why is verse 25 there? It seems out of place. No, it's perfectly in place. Because what do we know about Paul and Barnabas? They're just coming back from this mission trip, carrying this money uh, to help Jerusalem. But 
as I shared at the beginning of this message, this is, the last, this is pretty much the last of Peter. We're going to see him briefly in Acts chapter 15, but Acts 13 is going to start a new section in the book of Acts. We're no longer going to be focusing on Peter, but we're going to be focusing on this servant named Paul. And what do we know about Paul? He's the greatest missionary who ever lived. I had a professor that often said this, man, if Paul had an airplane, if Paul had an airplane, Jesus would have already come back. But we see God's word going further and further. The story began with the church being attacked. The story ends with God winning. And dear friends, I don't know what your situation is today. But that's the way every story is going to end with God. He always wins. Amen? Let us pray.